0: Happy new year to you all. And as always, thanks for listening. I'm not big on resolutions, but I do set goals every year. And my goal for CC Life Science is to expand the breadth of topics we cover and to create more content here, as well as on Life Science Marketing Radio. One of the areas I'm interested in is digital health. And another is new business models, which I think are fascinating. We're going to talk about both today with someone who is opening my eyes in both of those areas. So let's dive into it. Today, I've got with me Jason Scharf. He is the host of the Austin Next podcast. He's also been an operator at companies like Illumina and Keen Health, also an investor in the space. We first met on the San Diego Angel Investing Conference and he's been on that podcast and Life Science Marketing Radio and now on CC Life Science. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for having me. A lot of fun. So today we're going to talk about digital health and business model innovation. So lately I've been thinking, I mean, therapies are good, drugs are good, help keep us all alive, but that seems like a never-ending thing. And I'm very interested in prevention and digital health seems to be at least one route to that and we'll have another episode on that coming up soon but um so let's talk about that and you've got some ideas um we can start off with business models for example though infectious disease so what's the incentive for someone to make an anti-infective because they're only going to take this thing for maybe 10 days and then you know that's not the business model that a lot of drug companies are working on now, but there are ways around that.
1: Yeah, and I think, I think you hit the nail on the head, right, which is the business model right now in therapeutics, especially in anti-infectives, is I'm going to take it for a very short period of time. Um, most anti-infectives are generic, so there is a very cheap op- uh, option. And then especially if you create a – you think about like antibiotic resistance and so forth, if you create a really new, uh, wonderful – um antibiotic it's going to be put at the last line of defense so not only is are you gonna have a short period of time but very very few people are actually going to take it so if you kind of pencil out the math on that you kind of ask yourself as a company why would we be creating a new anti-infective and as you see we have a huge gap in that market right you've seen some stuff happen during covid but a lot of that was either done because it was already off the shelf like Resmedivir, was developed for Ebola, and they said, oh, well, we, let's see if we can reuse this, or you had a major market, you know, worldwide pandemic that you actually could get a long-term, or at least a, a high-volume market for a short period of time, which you saw we were able to do, but even now, the, those revenues are, are are starting to crash, and again, you're asking yourself, why would I be creating a new anti-infective when there's not a lot of opportunity in it, right? It's all, it was all about timing.
0: Yeah, so... How, what would be a model where that might make sense for, for someone to invest in creating a, a new anti-infective? Because we're certainly going to need it. Absolutely. And I, and I think it's,
1: when we think about, as you say, it's the business model change. So what is an example of a, of a really good anti-infective is all of the HIV medications that kind of came out of Gilead. What ended up happening with that, though, was sadly there were not a cure and so it turned HIV into a chronic disease. So now you had an anti-infective that was being turning into a daily pill at infinitum. And so, okay, there, there's a revenue model that was, was making sense, right? you turn turning it into a chronic disease. Now, when you have the more acute type of situations, that's not on the table. So some interesting stuff that I've seen started to play with, something in New Orleans was happening before the pandemic, and I've heard a little bit about it happening in the UK, was the idea of a subscription model. But here, the subscription model is more focused on the creation of new anti-infectives rather than the usage of it. So if I can create through a subscription model, think of it almost like an insurance policy of paying this company an ongoing uh, stream to produce new anti-infectives, then I as the company have an ongoing revenue stream. I'm incentivized because obviously to make new and better types of drugs the KPIs that I'm held to is probably going to be some sort of metric of how often, what's the clinical trials look like, and rather than the usage. So if it then sits on the shelf, I don't care. The people paying for this are happy that it's sitting on the shelf and ready for being used, and it kind of aligns the incentives of I create new, new drugs and we have new opportunities without necessarily breaking apart the, the business model of, okay, I got to be using this for this to actually work.
0: Right And so you mentioned it's, it's like an insurance policy. a company would have to know, you know we're going to create a certain amount of it and maybe it with some data, you can figure out what that amount should be. Certainly now, with things like Amazon, you have the ability to get that prescription to anybody I'm being biased in our country tomorrow, right essentially. So you don't even need to maintain stocks of it at hospitals or other places, you know, all over. So the amount you actually have to produce could be minimal. Now there's an interesting
1: um, cha- free rider challenge in the subscription model. So if a city or a state or like one group is the one paying the subscription for this company to produce, now they produce this great anti infected What happens for everybody who didn't pay the uh, pay the subscription? So it's I will say it's an interesting model. All of the issues of it aren't necessarily worked out. And I don't know how we kind of get through some of the free rider problems because at the same time, everything shouldn't be, you know, government spent, right? Because there's only so much of this that we can be doing. You saw that with Operation Warp Speed, which essentially was, again, this kind of pre-buying of, we need a vaccine and we're going to pay, you know, through the nose to get it.
0: Right. But in health. Insurance companies could pay subscriptions and, and make that a benefit. And with the number of them and the number of their members, I would imagine the subscription cost might be a tiny marginal increase in your premiums. Right. No, it makes
1: a lot of sense. You said having the payers. My The question I have in this model, uh, and you know, I'd love for people to start trying these new models so we can actually then work them out, is if there's six major payers and only five show up the the subscription. Well, what happens when the drug exists and the sixth one says, I want it?
0: Yeah. Well, then you paid the, the late fee were whatever likely whatever you would pay to buy a ticket to Taylor Swift at the last minute. I guess that
1: having a ticket master type of model in, uh you know, in healthcare is not a great idea. <laughs>
0: Um, all right, so let's talk about the consumerization of health. Um, tell me a little bit about One Medical and how Amazon's acquisition fits into this whole story of different business models and consumerization. Well, let's step back one, one step before the One Medical uh, acquisitions.
1: I think it kind of plays it out. So over the last, you know, five or six years or probably almost 10 now, we've had a lot of movement into the consumer telehealth space. You know, Everly Health, Rowe, Hims and Her's. Let's get checked. And they all came at it from a different perspective, right? So, you know, uh, I think Roe and hims and her started with the, hey, what's the type of stuff that you want to get that you're uncomfortable telling your doctor about, right? So erectile dysfunction medications, um, hair loss, et cetera. And then you had, you know, Everly Health and Modern Fertility where they were coming at it from the perspective of, why can't I easily get access to these tests in a simple way that allows me to get the information that i want to get right with transparent pricing i think that's been one of the bigger things like anything else i can go and order anything on amazon but why couldn't i order a test right so all of them kind of came from different directions COVID hit and you had the opening up of kind of the telehealth um restrictions so you could go across state lines now we're seeing that pull back a little bit it'll be interesting to see where that lands and now we're kind of in that moment of consolidation, right? We're in the kind of the, 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 the VC winter a little bit, you know, valuations are down and they're like, okay, I can't just be a testing service. I can't just be a physician service. I can't just be a pharmacy service. Right? So you're seeing lots of acquisitions of these types of companies coming together. So they all have kind of the same, you know, I have, you have doctors on call, you have, you're able to get your tests when you need it and you're able to get the various medications or therapies that come along with that. the, the fourth component to that, of course, is the physical space, right? So you can have wonderful um, connections and Zoom online, but all of the sensors aren't there. I can't do an MRI machine from home. And so that's the other component. And you have one medical, you have Carbon Health, you have a uh, forward, you have a lot of these kind of the new concierge type of thing. And when I look at Amazon buying one medical and pill pack and looking at now, I think the launch of what they're calling like it Amazon Care with the telehealth. It's that same thing. I need all of the pieces together. I can't just have one. And how do we go about kind of getting each of them together? So Amazon, you know, is the first to really, I think, make the move into the physical space. I wouldn't be that surprised if some of these other ones also take that kind of same move. So you have, you know, it's the digital front door. I start first online. I fill out what I need. And then now I know of, okay, it's pink eye. You can do that online and be able to, uh, um, diagnose it oh it's you know back pain that requires an mri okay you got to go into the office right and so i think we're starting to see all of them kind of come together
0: in different ways so tell us for the people who don't know and me a little bit more about you know what is one medical what is their it is it sort of like a local urgent care place or i mean it sounds like it's a physical yeah so one medical was was trying to um uh,
1: disrupt the kind of the primary care physician, right? They were putting themselves in all sorts of locations. Um, what I'm interested in with them, Forward is another example of this, that they were actually like in shopping malls. They were, in, you know, really getting closer to the consumer to come in and say, look, I just want to get a, qu- uh, you know, a quick primary care visit, right? It was obviously waiting times and being able to have access to these doctors is one of the biggest issues. They also had lots of cash payment, so you had, you had that as well. Now, one of the other interesting questions that we want to see about what Amazon does is one medical bot, uh, a company called um, Iorta, I think is how you pronounce it, which is all in the Medicare Advantage space. And 50% of their revenue was coming from Medicare Advantage. So a big question that myself and others have always been kind of discussing on what Amazon's next move is, what are they doing with Iorta? Are they trying to really be the digital front door uh, and pull all that together, which is really the primary care part of one medical? Or are they really going after the big, you know, medical, uh, Medicare Advantage space? And we'll see that Iorta becomes the kind of the key point. So is that going to be spun off? Is that going to be, um, divested? Is that going to be the primary, uh, piece that they go through? I think with the launch of Amazon care, it looks more like they are trying to do this digital front door telehealth, uh, all around a
0: new, new model for consumer health. So here's a question I hadn't thought of. Um, you know, I can imagine let's say, yeah, one medical presence in a shopping mall and you go in there, but who, I mean, one of the benefits of having a healthcare plan is a continuous um, set of data about you, right? You Mm -hmm. have all your records are in one place. I mean, I love the idea, like if I'm out of town or wherever, I don't feel well, I just go to a doctor. Where is there a doctor? But the disadvantage is, that record doesn't get back to my healthcare plan or anything. So is that a missing piece in this? Or is Amazon the aggregator of all that and somehow going to connect all that data? Do people even care? Well, so the interesting thing is another
1: acquisition that kind of comes into that realm is Oracle buying Cerner. So as if you know so Cerner is one of the two largest medical record companies in the country, Epic being the other one. And about a year ago, Oracle bought Cerner. And the move they were trying, at least that um, they've been saying out loud, they're trying to do, is being that connective tissue. Being kind of the, the medical record across and being able to everyone comes in and access. Now, it's been a very interesting realm that Cerner's always tried to be a little more playing friendly with other medical records for connectivity versus Epic has been very standalone and a closed shop. So it'll be interesting to see how that actually plays out. I think the other part that's interesting and to see where Amazon goes. So ten years ago when I was at Beck and Dickinson, when we looked at Apple, Google, et cetera, it was always, okay, we have to be a we have to be a, a tech player before they become a healthcare player, right? And generally speaking, you know, Apple, Google, they're all doing stuff. But I haven't really gotten out and said, "Oh my God, that you know they're they're in this space." We put Amazon in that group, but Amazon isn't looking more like a tech player; they are looking more like Walgreens, CVS, Walmart, who are all really getting into this play as well, right? You've got um, CV or Walgreens buying uh, Signify Health to get into the um, into the home market. Uh, I think that it was either Walgreens or CVS was going after Amazon when the, in the one medical, they were the other big bidder. So you're asking on that connected, well, CVS owns Aetna. So if you are a, an Ethan if you're part of their plan, well now suddenly there's a CVS everywhere and they're all getting much more into the primary care. So that's the biggest disruptor is in primary care is that all of these big retailers, for lack of a better term, are becoming the tip of the spear for re, for primary care. That's interesting. Okay, so I, mean, I wouldn't got my flu shot at CVS, not at my primary care.
0: Yeah, I got one of my boosters at CVS. Too. I mean, it was probably the best experience I've ever had at CVS. <laughs> the checkout counter is not my favorite. Um, all right, so I've seen some apps going back to preventative care I and mean, digital health that are focused sort of on coaching and regime change. We're going to have a, an episode around that. Talk about examples of that and how people are incentivized to follow through on behavior change. So really, it's, again, how is this paid for? If you get an app that's supposed to keep you healthier, where's the money? What drives the the ability to have that because someone sees the value of paying for it? Because we live in a culture where we only pay for things when they need to be fixed after they're broke.
1: And I think that's the toughest part, right? Because one of the things that I've seen in a lot of these apps with coaching, like, is we're now kind of in a a layoff era right now. And it's the coaches that are all getting laid off, right? Because it's a high-touch environment. We haven't quite done, created the AI coach yet. And people are not necessarily immediately seeing the value, right? Because a lot of the things that you can be coached on, the feedback loop, like, say, obesity or the like, is very far off. Right oh, I lost a pound today. I lost you know half a uh, half a pound. Oh, you know, I don't look any different, right I mean, there's the re- same thing like people go to, they sign up for the gym in January and then it all kind of falls off, right? The same kind of thing the coaching is the design of them have to be better to create that kind of feedback right and create the immunity. I think it's interesting like when you have something like a calm, which may be a little more of an you know or a headspace, they're the coaching. Or the the meditation component, the feedback's immediate, right? Like if I'm gonna put on something to help fall asleep and I'm listening to calm and I fall asleep, well, great, it worked. I'll keep right. paying for it because I can fall asleep, right? Um when you when you push it out, especially on the healthcare side, it's a lot harder to see either I have to take a blood test or I have to take a um or I have to put on the scale it's farther off, or it has to be a kind of situation where I'm actually it's not so much Preventative of the initial type of situation, but like there's going to be a major event. I'm going to have a stroke. I'm going to go to the hospital in the case of diabetes if I don't listen to this, right? And so that's where it kind of gets into the, the the connective tissue of how do I get actual behavior change? And a a real great insight that I saw in Clayton Christensen's um, healthcare book, Innovators Prescription, is, is really stuck with me. The book's about uh, I think 2000. 10, 11. And when you look at people changing and adherence, he made this great like two by two metric or two by two uh, matrix, right? So the X-axis was complexity of care. And the Y-axis was the feedback loop, right? So top left-hand quarter, low complexity of care, high feedback loop. Bad eyesight, if I... Take a pair of glasses and I put them on, I can see. And it fixed it. If I take it off, I can't see. Really easy to to deal with, really easy to fix. So people are always going to be utilizing, they're gonna adhere to the glasses, right? I can't see now I can see. Top right hand corner is, you know, high feedback, low high complexity of care. So there's what we're talking about, like say type one diabetes. Highly complicated disease to deal with on a daily basis. However, if you do not deal with it on a daily basis, you end up in the hospital immediately. So your incentive to deal with that is right is there. Bottom right-hand corner, that is our highly complex of care, low feedback loop. The epitome of that is obesity, right? Which is, okay, I got to eat different. I got to exercise. I got to change the way that I'm doing my actual lifestyle. And my feedback loop is very, very slow. If I want to actually change anything, it takes months if not years depending on where it is that I'm starting out and it takes a high level of willpower and that's the reason we've talked a lot about you know why they want the you know obesity uh, drug right because then we change it to being like I can just take a drug and at least at the complexity of care it changes that so I do think that is a, is a an amazing place of innovation is when you're in that bottom right hand corner how do I change the feedback or decrease the complexity of care
0: Right. So that seems, I mean, at least that two by two matrix seems to give us a model for where to put effort right, on on a problem like that. Then the question is, what does that look like? What what do we get out of it? But that's interesting. Okay. So um, you are very tuned into the Austin. And now I'm going to say, because of your recent road trip, the entire Texas ecosystem, but what's, What's happening in Austin around healthcare innovation? So
1: one of the things, and as you said, like we've gone to all, we've gone to Houston, we've gone to San Antonio, we've talked to people in Dallas. And, and I do have a big thing that I think Austin and Texas is really the next big bio hub. And the key with that is not to be, to be the first Austin, be the first Texas, not the next Boston or, or Silicon Valley, right? We've got to find the unique uh, sauce that's for us. And so when I think about that, and we talk about, like, say, therapeutics, Austin does not have the machine that Boston or the Bay Area does, or even uh, San Diego, to be producing the, you know, new small molecules or new biologics coming out of the university every week, right? Uh, university of Texas at Austin is a wonderful school, but when I think about the opportunity space there, that, that's just not, it's bread and butter, right? What I think of in Austin is really that convergence tech, right? So if you're to tell me that there's an AI platform here doing de novo drug design, well, yeah, I, I totally, that makes sense to me, right? And so that is, I think, where, where we're coming. So we, we talked earlier, really, we have Everly Health here, right? One of the big unicorns. What's, what's the convergence? E-commerce and lab testing. And now they're obviously growing into lots of telehealth. Wheel is another big, uh, a big unicorn here. And that is really about building the digital infrastructure so that mom and pop physician office can go and actually offer remote, right? I think of a lot of times of as like the Shopify of telehealth, right? Instead of me building it from scratch, I can just go get these different tools. We have, um, you know, AI driven clinical decision support, uh, software. We have, you know, woolly mammoths, uh, and de-extinction, you know, bringing together CRISPR, AI, uh, genomics and the like. We have a new company here that just that spun out of uh, Colossal Biosciences, which is the Wooly Mammoth company, called Form Bio, which is you know they call it so like the CAD of you know genomic engineering, right? So mixing the tech talent that's here, you know, software, hardware, engineering, with the the synthetic biology, the engineering of biology that we are going forth in this kind of this new bio era, I think that. Austin, in particular, is primed for that. And then also the fact that being in Texas and having the super region, Houston and the Texas Medical Center, absolutely amazing in the stuff that they're doing. I actually tend to think of procedural medical devices and therapeutics coming out of there. San Antonio is an amazing uh, clinical trial infrastructure and the amount of clinics and hospitals that they have there. College Station, where Texas A&M is, has a lot of actually manufacturing in this space, so Fujifilm uh, has a huge uh, manufacturing plant there that they're actually I think, doubling in size. So a lot of really interesting pieces and infrastructure are in place to allow us to be where the puck is going.
0: Yeah, well put. Well, Jason, Sheriff, I want to thank you. You always, I mean, you think about these things at a level that I do not. And so I appreciate that. I, And I will put a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes and recommend everybody tune in and subscribe to the Austin Next Podcast if you want to find out what's happening in Texas. Thanks a lot for having me, Chris. Yeah, my pleasure. As they say, don't mess with Texas. There's a lot going on down there. I had the privilege of going to Houston in October to do a story for Chemical and Engineering News around the Welch Conference. The Welch Foundation funds chemical research throughout Texas and every year brings outstanding scientists from around the world to discuss a single topic. I had the pleasure to interview Carolyn Bertozzi, a 2022 Nobel Prize winner in chemistry, along with the organizer of the conference, W.E. Myrner, a winner from 2014. They both work in the area of using light, in a particular way to see what's going on inside of cells, Carolyn Bertozzi, particularly around glycobiology, which was a big deal this year. I also got to interview Dr. Peter Hotez, who gave a keynote around the growing anti-vaccine and anti-science movement and a lot of other great scientists. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. As always, if you like this podcast, make sure you subscribe and tell two colleagues. Bye-bye.